Chapter Seven of Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Reichert. Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic by Benedetto Croce. Translated by Douglas Ainsley, 1865 to 1948. Chapter 7 Analogy Between the Theoretic and the Practical The Two Forms of Practical Activity The twofold grade of the theoretical activity, aesthetic and logical, has an important parallel in the practical activity, which has not yet been placed in due relief. The practical activity is also divided into a first and second degree, the second implying the first. The first practical degree is the simply useful or economical activity, the second the moral activity. Economy is, as it were, the aesthetic of practical life, morality its logic. The economically useful. If this has not been clearly seen by philosophers, if its suitable place in the system of the mind has not been given to the economic activity, and it has been left to wander in the prolegomena to treatises on political economy, often uncertain and but slightly elaborated, this is due, among other reasons, to the fact that the useful or economic has been confused now with the concept of technique, now with that of the egoistic. Distinction between the useful and the technical Technique is certainly not a special activity of the spirit, Technique is knowledge, or better, it is knowledge itself, in general, that takes this name, as we have seen, in so far as it serves as basis for practical action. Knowledge which is not followed, or is presumed to be not easily followed by practical action, is called pure. The same knowledge, if effectively followed by action, is called applied. If it is presumed that it can be easily followed by the same action, it is called technical or applied. This word, then, indicates a situation in which knowledge already is or easily can be found, not a special form of knowledge. So true is this that it would be altogether impossible to establish whether a given order of knowledge were intrinsically pure or applied. All knowledge, however abstract and philosophical one may imagine it to be, can be a guide to practical acts, a theoretical error in the ultimate principles of morals can be reflected and always is reflected in some way in practical life. One can only speak roughly and unscientifically of truths that are pure and of others that are applied. The same knowledge, which is called technical, can also be called useful. But the word useful, in conformity with the criticism of judgments of value made above, is to be understood as used here in a linguistic or metaphorical sense. When we say that water is useful for putting out fire, the word useful is used in a non-scientific sense. Water thrown on the fire is the cause of its going out. This is the knowledge that serves for basis to the action, let us say, of firemen. There is a link, not of nature, but of simple succession, between the useful action of the person who extinguishes the conflagration and this knowledge. The technique of the effects of the water 
is the theoretical activity which precedes. The action of him who extinguishes the fire is alone useful. Distinction between the useful and the egoistic. Some economists identify utility with egoism, that is to say, with merely economical action or desire, with that which is profitable to the individual, in so far as individual, without regard to, and indeed in complete opposition, to the moral law. The egoistic is the immoral. In this case, economy would be a very strange science, standing not beside, but facing ethic, like the devil facing God, or at least like the advocatus diaboli in the processes of canonization. Such a conception of it is altogether inadmissible. The science of immorality is implied in that of morality, as the science of the false is implied in logic, the science of the true, and a science of ineffectual expression in aesthetic, the science of successful expression. If, then, economy were the scientific treatment of egoism, it would be a chapter of ethic, or ethic itself, because every moral determination implies, at the same time, a negation of its contrary. Further, conscience tells us that to conduct oneself economically is not to conduct oneself egoistically, that even the most morally scrupulous man must conduct himself usefully, economically, if he does not wish to be inconclusive and therefore not truly moral. If utility were egoism, how could it be the duty of the altruist to behave like an egoist? Economic Will and Moral Will If we are not mistaken, the difficulty is solved in a manner perfectly analogous to that in which is solved the problem of the relations between the expression and the concept, between aesthetic and logic. To will economically is to will an end. To will morally is to will the rational end. But whoever wills and acts morally cannot but will and act usefully, economically. How could he will the rational unless he willed it also as his particular end? Pure Economicity the reciprocal is not true, as it is not true in aesthetic science, that the expressive fact must of necessity be linked with the logical fact. It is possible to will economically without willing morally, and it is possible to conduct oneself with perfect economic coherence while pursuing an end which is objectively irrational, immoral, or better, an end which would be so judged in a superior grade of consciousness. Examples of the economic without the moral character are the Prince of Machiavelli, Caesar Borgia, or the Iago of Shakespeare. Who can help admiring their strength of will, although their activity is only economic and is opposed to what we hold moral? Who can help admiring the Sir Ciappelletto of Boccaccio, who even on his deathbed pursues and realizes his ideal of the perfect rascal making the small and timid little thieves who are present at his burlesque confession exclaim, What manner of man is this, whose perversity, neither age nor infirmity, nor the fear of death, which he sees at hand, nor the fear of God, before whose judgment seat he must stand in a little while, have been able to remove, 
nor to cause that he should not wish to die as he has lived. THE ECONOMIC SIDE OF MORALITY The moral man unites with the pertinacity and fearlessness of a Caesar Borgia, or an Iago, or of a Sir Giappoletto, the good will of the saint or of the hero, or better, good will would not be will, and consequently not good, if it did not possess, in addition to the side which makes it good, also that which makes it will. Thus a logical thought, which does not succeed in expressing itself, is not thought, but at the most, a confused presentiment of a thought yet to come. It is not correct, then, to conceive of the amoral man as also the anti-economical man, or to make of morality an element of coherence in the acts of life, and therefore of economicity. Nothing prevents us from conceiving, an hypothesis which is verified at least during certain periods and moments, if not during whole lifetimes, a man altogether without moral conscience. In a man thus organized, what for us is immorality is not so for him, because it is not so felt. The consciousness of the contradiction between what is desired as a rational end and what is pursued egoistically cannot be born in him. This contradiction is anti-economicity. Immoral conduct becomes also anti-economical only in the man who possesses moral conscience. The moral remorse which is the proof of this is also economical remorse, that is to say, pain at not having known how to will completely and to attain to that moral ideal which was willed at the first moment, but was afterwards perverted by the passions. Video migliora proboque, deteriora sequor. The video and the probo are here an initial will immediately contradicted and passed over. In the man deprived of moral sense, we must admit a remorse which is merely economic, like that of a thief or of an assassin who should be attacked when on the point of robbing or of assassinating, and should abstain from doing so, not owing to a conversion of his being, but owing to his impressionability and bewilderment, or even owing to a momentary awakening of the moral consciousness. When he has come back to himself, that thief or assassin will regret and be ashamed of his inconsequence. His remorse will not be due to having done wrong, but to not having done it. His remorse is therefore economic, not moral, since the latter is excluded by hypothesis. However, a lively moral conscience is generally found among the majority of men, and its total absence is a rare and perhaps non-existent monstrosity. It may therefore be admitted that morality coincides with economicity in the conduct of life. THE MERELY ECONOMIC AND THE ERROR OF THE MORALLY INDIFFERENT there need be no fear lest the parallelism affirmed by us should introduce afresh into the category of the morally indifferent, of that which is in truth action and volition, but is neither moral nor immoral, the category in some of the licit and the permissible, which has always been the cause or mirror of ethical corruption, as is the case with Jesuitical morality in which it dominated. It remains quite certain 
that indifferent moral actions do not exist because moral activity pervades and must pervade every least volitional movement of man but this far from upsetting the parallelism confirms it do there exist intuitions which science and the intellect do not pervade and analyze resolving them into universal concepts or changing them into historical affirmations we have already seen that true science philosophy knows no external limits which bar its way as happens with the so-called natural sciences science and morality entirely dominate the one the aesthetic intuitions the other the economic volitions of man although neither of them can appear in the concrete save in the intuitive form as regards the one in the economic as regards the other critique of utilitarianism and the reform of ethic and of economic this combined identity and difference of the useful and of the moral of the economic and of the ethic explains the fortune enjoyed now and formerly by the utilitarian theory of ethic it is in fact easy to discover and to show a utilitarian side in every moral action as it is easy to show an aesthetic side of every logical proposition the criticism of ethical utilitarianism cannot escape by denying this truth and seeking out absurd and inexistent examples of useless moral actions it must admit the utilitarian side and explain it as the concrete form of morality which consists of what is within this form utilitarians do not see this within this is not the place for a more ample development of such ideas ethic and economic cannot but be gainers as we have said of logic and aesthetic by a more exact determination of the relations that exist between them economic science is now rising to the animating concept of the useful as it strives to pass beyond the mathematical phase in which it is still entangled a phase which when it superseded historicism was in its turn a progress destroying a series of arbitrary distinctions and false theories of economic implied in the confusion of the theoretical with the historical with this conception it will be easy on the one hand to absorb and to verify the semi-philosophical theories of so-called pure economy and on the other by the introduction of successive complications and additions and by passing from the philosophical to the empirical or naturalistic method to include the particular theories of the political or national economy of the schools phenomenon and noumenon in practical activity as aesthetic intuition knows the phenomenon or nature and philosophic intuition the noumenon or spirit so economic activity wills the phenomenon or nature and moral activity the noumenon or spirit the spirit which desires itself its true self the universal which is in the empirical and finite spirit that is the formula which perhaps defines the essence of morality with the least impropriety this will for the true self is absolute liberty end of chapter seven recording by lisa reichert